on the Hard Rocker Sports Network from KTech 91.3. This is Hard Rocker Huddle, your podcast home for South Dakota Mines Athletics. Welcome into the Hard Rocker Huddle this week. Um, doing things a little bit different. We have two guests this week. Um, first is our head athletic tra- trainer, Caleb Burney. Um, it's athletic training month, so we're going to do each athletic trainer, hopefully, each day of the or each recording this month. Um, first, Caleb, um, can you just talk a little bit about, you know, what Athletic Training Month is, what does it mean to you, and what the purpose of it is? Yeah, and thanks for having me, Josh. And um, so Athletic Training Month is basically the month of March. Uh, it's a month that us athletic trainers, we celebrate our profession, uh, but it's also a month that we really focus on educating the public. Uh, athletic training is a profession that is well known but at the same time not well known outside especially outside of athletics and so it's really a month for us to promote ourselves and what we do yeah kind of going off that um, part of that is probably just teaching the public you know what you actually do compared to what reality is yeah absolutely So, so if you want to just explain a little bit you know what what does your day-to-day look like? I know it's not consistent as nothing in sports is, but the best you can. Yeah, I mean, for most part, uh, you know, we're in usually uh, 8, 9 o'clock for a lot, a lot of days. Um, and then usually we're, you know, I usually start my day off with paperwork, um, you know, writing notes, any of our medical notes that we have to keep up to date, um, kind of keeping track of all of our surgical kids, uh, making sure that we're getting notes from the physicians and then putting those into our system as well. Um, and then for me, I usually start all of our rehabilitations around 10 a.m. So I do about two hours of that, and it's basically just nonstop, seeing about two to three athletes at a time. Um, and, you know, just working on whether it be an ankle rehab, a shoulder rehab, or, or maybe a preventative re- uh, program that we do that we like to focus on here. And then I, I always like to take an hour for lunch just to, to make sure I can get away, get off campus, and then come back and start the same thing back up right around 1 o'clock and um, basically do that until practice time, which for here is about 5 o'clock, and then we have practice from 5 to 7. So I would typically go down to the field probably around 3, get set up, get the field set up, all the waters, and then you know, and then we get the team ready with taping and stretching and doing all of that. Um, and we usually start that like an hour and a half before practice to, just to get everybody through. And then um, we hang out at practice and hopefully not, hopefully we don't have to work at practice. And then, you know, we're, I'm usually around for another 45 minutes to an hour after practice, just uh, icing kids down or doing evaluations and, and making our plan for the next day. And then I finally get to go home. Yeah, you kind of mentioned how hopefully you don't have to work in practice. It's such it's kind of a weird profession where obviously you're passionate about what you do, but the less injuries there are the better even though that's really so it's kind of it's kind of just an odd profession where you don't want bad things to happen obviously, but at the same time that's kind of your part of your job too. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one thing we've really focused on and kind of changed about how we do athletic training here this year is we've put a lot more emphasis on preventative exercises to help reduce those injuries. I mean, things are going to happen. Injuries are going to happen. That's sports. But if you can reduce, you know, your ankle sprains by 50% on a team or whatever the number is, uh, your job's a lot easier and it's a lot more fun too. Yeah. And I think there's some, obviously not in the departments, but I think there's some underappreciation towards what athletic trainers do as a whole. And 
obviously, being in sports, it, it's critical. I mean, we probably wouldn't have sports nowadays if it wasn't for athletic trainers. Yeah, absolutely. And there was actually an issue this fall at Alcorn State where they almost had to cancel games because their athletic trainers were out. Um, but I know here, especially, or in other places I've been, um, you know, we're kind of the forgotten piece. Um, not saying we're underappreciated here at, at all, um, but we're, uh, you know, we just kind of do our thing and we get kids back. But, you know, especially people in the public, they see the what's at practice and, and the games. And, you know, usually um, we're not too, we're hopefully not usually too busy at games, but it, they don't, it's the work, you know, Monday through Friday that uh, a lot of people just maybe not, maybe don't re- recognize. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I, I, I met, I've compared SIDs before to this, but you probably have the same same deal where I kind of like, it's kind of like we're an old lineman where you don't know somebody made a, somebody doesn't know your name until you do something wrong kind exactly. of situation. Yes. Um, and for you personally, what, you know, what was your kind of journey like into athletic training? Is it something you went to school for? How did you develop your passion for it? Yeah, so in a lot of ways, I've been an athletic trainer my entire life. Uh, my dad was a chiropractor, and I grew up in a very small town of about 1,500 people in southwest Kansas. And so he was the only healthcare in town. Uh, and so we would do physicals, all the sports physicals every year. Um, he would actually be on the sidelines at football games, and he knew he could tape ankles and wrists and do those kinds of things. And he knew enough, you know, being a chiropractor that he could take care of those of those athletes. And so I would always just basically want to hang out with my dad. We I'd hang out on the sidelines with them, and um, not like I probably did more than put a bandaid on somebody, but I know I definitely helped out with physicals a lot. That was always a favorite time of the year for me. It's not now. I don't know if I would say that, but you know, it's definitely a a busy time for us and. Uh, uh, and so that's what kind of got me interested. I knew I either wanted to go chiropractic or athletic training when I started looking at colleges. Um, I ended up at Wichita State, and then I decided to go with athletic training once I got there. And then um, from there, I've just it's just taken off, and it's been a it's been a fun ride. Sure, um, we already briefly touched on uh, Nath- National Athletic Training Month. The slogan this year is "Providing Healthcare Everywhere," which you already touched on there. Um, and you guys really do, I mean, from taping to testing at the beginning of the year, physicals, concussion protocols, you guys really do have your hands in pretty much everything that goes on in the athletic department, whether it's preseason, in-season, out-of-season. There's just so much that goes into what you do. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we, we like to joke that we're an iceberg profession. Um, you know, you see us taping or you, you see us on the field when somebody actually gets hurt, um, but you don't see all the other stuff. You don't see the the concussion baseline testing and then all that extra testing we do. You don't see the uh, the mental health that we deal with on a daily basis. We, you know, we're, we see these student athletes basically every single day, and so, you know, we're kind of a, you know, a, a source to vent or a source to just talk to and talk about life, and um, that's probably one of the things I really enjoy most is, being able to just have those conversations with the student athletes. Um, and then, it, you know, then it, and it goes into everything else from, um, you know, basically being their mom. Um, you know, if they're sick, they come to us. If they, um, if they get a splinter, a lot of times they'll come and see us instead. You know, I've seen everything from a kid chopping off his finger, trying to cook dinner to um, somebody that just needed to come and talk. And so I think that's, what's really fun about this profession is we're so broad. Uh, and the cool thing is, is because of that, 
we're in so many different areas. I mean, I've got friends that work at Boeing and we're at NASA where NASCAR has athletic trainers and now the military has a lot of athletic trainers too. And so we're such a broad profession that we can really work anywhere. Um, I mean, the, technically the term is that we treat athletes. Um, well, an athlete can be a 40 year old man who wants to be a runner and marathoner or just wants to be an active runner or, um, you know, somebody working at Amazon, uh, I believe Amazon actually has athletic trainers too. Uh, and so it's just kind of cool, all the environments that we can be in and, and really kind of help change <clears throat> that place for the better. Yeah. And you kind of touched on something I wanted to cover and that's just how much the profession has grown. I mean, 20 years ago, there was maybe one athletic trainer in a college mm-hmm. in high schools that wouldn't even have them, you know, and it's just, now you look at even a small school like us, we have four. Mm-hmm. We basically have somebody to cover each each in-season sport. So it's just how much has, um, you know, the organization NADA helped with the growth of athletic training? Yeah, yeah, our national association is fantastic. I mean, they do a lot for us. They <clears throat> make sure that we have all the resources that we need um, to uh, increase staff or increase pay or um, just those resources. And, you know, all of it's very easily available. <clears throat> and so it's they do a great and they do a great job. You know, the, just the networking you get from them is also fantastic. Um, you get to meet some of the some of the best athletic trainers in the country. Um, but yeah, you've seen a big growth where, you know, schools like Northwestern, Alabama, they've got 15 to 20 athletic trainers, one for each sport. We're here. We've got, you know, each athletic trainer has two sports. Um, at a lot of schools, you know, the ratio that they like, and this sounds crazy to a lot of people is every athletic trainer, there's a hundred athletes for them. <clears throat> and so that's insane. You yeah. don't really think yeah. about that. One person can take care of a hundred people throughout a year. Um, but that's really kind of where it's progressed from is, you know, a lot of these universities back in the seventies might've had one or two. Um, and that's still, but in, the problem is in some places that's still the same case. Uh, and so it's, it's, there's just so much growth that can still be made, which is what's, it's crazy to think about. Yeah. I think especially mm-hmm. at the high school level, there's a lot of growth still there where, you know, I went to a big school with mm-hmm. like 600 athletes. We had one athletic trainer. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a, briefly, I was a small school AD and we didn't even have an athletic mm-hmm. trainer. So it's, I think there's a lot of girls still. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you go to Texas, there's three or four athletic trainers at every high school. I mean, they take their football very seriously down there. And so that's what helps with that. But then if you come here to South Dakota, um, you know, not every high school has an athletic trainer. And, you know, a lot of times it's, uh, you know, these rural communities, they, you might be traveling from Rapid City to cover. I know like here monument health we've got coverage in hill city and custer and you know places like that and so like but that makes that accessibility to athletic trainers tougher and you know not every place has it i think there's only 381 athletic trainers here in south dakota which and i don't know the number of schools and high schools and stuff but that's i'm I'm pretty sure that's probably not as many as there are schools and you know now athletic trainers are getting into middle schools too uh and so that's pretty cool to see that you know, we can really start those kids at a younger age of understanding what health is and how to be healthy and, you know, within sports, but also just in life too. Yeah. I think part of the reason, you know, it's getting into younger too, is some of those things that maybe weren't as important, not that they weren't as important, but maybe weren't as talked about like Mm -hmm. mental health Mm -hmm. five years ago, 
you know, how important is it in athletic training? I know you've been doing this for a while. Concussions were not as big of a deal when you first started. Yeah. Mental health, obviously, is a more recent. Mm-hmm. So how important is it to, you know, keep up with trends and keep learning new information? Oh, it's extremely vital, especially in athletic training, because there is so much more information coming out, you know, almost seems like on a weekly to monthly basis. Uh, I mean, even just the way that we rehab ACLs from when I first got into the profession is completely different. Um, and so understand, I think it's just because there's more research out there. Um, there's just, and there's just a better understanding and we've, cause we're putting in the work and the national athletic trainers association is putting in that work so we can understand these a lot better. And then obviously, you know, you know, improving our relationships with physicians, that's always a great thing that's helped us improve our profession. The same thing with PTs, um, and using those other resources, you know, with us and PTs is we have a very similar job, but we have to really work together. Um, and so they know some things that, and they do some things better than we do. And we do some things differently than they do. And so it's a great, uh, uh, it's a great way for us to work together. All right. Thank you, Caleb. I don't have any other questions for you. Do you have anything you want to add? No, I just want to say that, you know, we've got a great staff here for the athletic trainers and, um, you know, we really take pride in our work and we love being hard rockers and we love, you know, making sure that these athletes get to enjoy their, their sport. And so we just, uh, are very thankful for what we get to do. Actually, our second guest today, uh, interim director of track and field, Dan Hawkinson. Um, just kind of starting off what, you know, you grew up in Carnation, Washington, I believe, Seattle suburb. What was that kind of like growing up there? You know, what was your family life like? Any siblings? Yeah, actually, um, Carnation is not really a suburb. It's it's rural. So um, it's a town of about 900 people. So I grew up on a farm. Um, my I have four siblings, three siblings, sorry, there's four of us. I've got two older sisters and a younger brother. Uh, my dad was a commercial fisherman um, for most of my childhood, and then he wanted to get into farming. And so he bought this farm, um, but really didn't know anything about farming. So he kind of tried a bunch of different types of farming for a long time and um, while he was fishing, and the fishing business was very good. So um, it kind of afforded him the luxury of uh, attempting different types of farming. But eventually he uh, landed on this... Um, uh, certified organic uh, kind of all-around farm and um, that's what he did so he quit fishing when I was um, about 16 and that's what we did so we lived on the farm and we were farmers sure and you were pretty much there all the way through high school and everything right yeah yeah um, my parents got divorced um, when I was just about that age too, 16 and so it disrupted a little bit, but my mom moved not too far away. So, like, we would spend weekends at her house and weeks at my dad's house. By then, my older sisters had moved away, gone to college, and it's just me and my brother. Um, but, yeah, we, uh, you know, I we moved to – we bought the farm in 1989, so I was seven, and then I lived there for – until I was 18, until I moved to college. Sure. What kind of initially, when you were younger, got you in, in – initially interested in sports and what kind of sports were you involved in obviously outside of track and field yeah um as a kid i did uh baseball um and soccer i played 
uh, you know, during baseball season, I thought for sure, almost 99% sure I'll be a professional baseball player. That is almost certainly what will happen. Then during soccer season, I'd be like, hold on a second, there's a pretty good chance I'll be a professional soccer player. Um, turns out I was not good at either of those sports. I just kind of thought that I was. But, um, yeah, so I did uh, those sports, kind of normal sports, and then... Uh, and I did them hard, like as hard as I could. Sports meant everything to me. But um, I, uh, when I, in seventh grade, I started doing track. And the reason was my dad had been a distance runner. My dad had been a pretty good high school distance runner. In fact, he still holds his high school record in the mile. Um, an unbreakable record because they don't run that event anymore. So... Um, like they have run 1600 meter runs that would be much faster than his record. But also, I mean, it's different time. I'm not trying to, it's not an apology for my dad, but, uh, he, uh, at the time in the sixties, he ran 422 or something in the mile, which was pretty good at that time. It's still good. We'd, we'd recruit him today. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, what kind of drew you to, what was it about track and field that made you, you know, realize this is kind of what I think I want to do when I get to college, and then do you have any good recruiting stories? Um, yeah, so, well, I tried to make it as a distance runner, um, and I, uh, I at every track meet that I went to, the coaching at my high school, if, if any coaches from my high school are listening to this, please uh, forgive me, but it wasn't really good. Um, the, the, the direction wasn't very good. So, like, I was like, well, I'll be a... Uh, distance runner. I had thrown the discus in middle school because you had to do a field event. Um, and I was really bad at the other field events. Um, so I, I was like, I did okay at the discus and I was like, well, I'll run the mile and two mile and throw the discus. So I did those three events at every single track meet as a track and field coach. I can tell you that's um, not a good strategy. First of all, the training for those event areas is is mutually exclusive so like you running will make you a worse discus thrower um so but they never said that they never said hey you should pick something and focus on it so i didn't and uh i was at a track meet and we did you know we did those i did those three events and i got you know i ran a pr in the two mile i ran a pr in the mile and i threw a pr in the discus all in the same meet. And I think I got eighth in the two mile, seventh in the mile. I was always kind of leading the second pack, which is not a good place to be. And then I threw, oh, I don't know, 130 something in the discus, which I won. And I don't think I'd ever won a track and field event at that point. Like I'd been okay distance runner in middle school, but I wasn't really progressing. And I was like, I went home and I talked to my dad and I said, why, how, why is it that you could run 420 and I'm running 520 or five. I think I ran 510. It was my mile PR still to this day. And, uh, he was like, well, you know, you're my son and I love you. But, um, when I was running 420, I weighed 135 pounds, 6'2", 135. And I was like, oh, I weigh 195, which I thought was pretty skinny. I would love to be 195 today. Um, but it's just a real difference. That extra 60, 60 pounds um, hurts you. And so, like, uh, I had a very good throws coach. And uh, this was my sophomore year. He was like, you should th start throwing the shot. Instead of doing all this running, do something you're, you're naturally built for. Because it wasn't like I was... I was exercising a lot. Like, I was running cross-country. I played soccer. All the way through high school, I played soccer. Um, 
and uh, I was in good shape. I just wasn't cut out to be 135. So that's when I started throwing the discus and I threw the shot as well. And I, when I stopped running, I didn't really ever stop running because I did cross country for my four years in high school. Um, that was probably a mistake, but what can you do? Um, but I started to improve a lot in the in the discus, and um, I got good-ish, you know, good enough. But you asked about recruiting, and that's kind of interesting too. So, like, track is tough sport to get recruited in because it's in the spring. So, like, you really have to do well your junior year. Otherwise, it's too late. And I didn't do well until my senior year. So I threw 146 in the discus. 149, sorry, as a, um, no, 146. 146, it doesn't matter. I threw 146 as a junior in high school, which is like, okay, I would recruit that guy, but I recruit, you know, a little deeper than a lot of schools do. But I was like, you know, I threw, uh, and then I threw uh, my senior year through 175, which is quite good. I've never recruited somebody who threw that far, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn here or anything. It's not that great, but it was good enough to, like, go to college and, and think, yeah, I should definitely do this. Um, but I also overshot a little bit, so, you know, like, I wasn't heavily recruited because it was very late in the game by the time I had thrown that far, so I said, uh, I was I was emailing the coach at Oregon and saying, like, I should go there, and he said, no, you shouldn't, you're not that good, um, and then, like, I had gotten some letters from some junior colleges, and I was like, oh, I'm too good for that, and, uh, which is also not true, I wasn't too good for that. I think a lot of kids think they're too good for something or too bad for something, and it's not. There's a lot of gray area. So um, I got interest from this D3 school in Tacoma. Um, he was very interested, and he was the only one, so it was an easy one for me. Yeah, was, obviously that was pretty close to home, so was that kind of night? Was that kind of something you were looking for, or was it just really the only option you had, so that's what you went with? It wasn't what I was looking for, necessarily. I wasn't really looking for And also, it was just, I don't know, kids today are way more savvy about being recruited. Um, I didn't have, like, I didn't have a guidance counselor telling me whatever. My high school track coaches weren't, like emailing coaches and like I get emails from from track coaches saying here's the kids on our team that are good um nothing really like that and uh I don't know if it was just a different time or just track um eh, it's just different so yeah um it was close to home which is nice I guess but it wasn't really what I was thinking about I, I had not really considered that but I do I did love where I grew up and I didn't really want to move away and it was nice that I could come home on the weekends if I wanted to yeah yeah, you kind of mentioned just different times. Recruiting has just changed so much just in the last, even in the last, like, 10 years, just with social yeah, media. Absolutely. And just yeah. a whole different ballgame now. Yeah, social media is a game changer. Um, we did have MySpace, I think, my senior year <laughs> in high school, but that, I don't know if any coaches were on MySpace looking for kids. Um, but, yeah, I, it was it's just, uh, I don't know, even just statistic keeping, um, like today a kid emails me and they say, I threw this distance. I'm like, well, let's see. Yeah. I'll be able to find that out really, really fast. Back then though, uh, there was no records. You know, you could, you would have to look at somebody's penciled results that they kept from a meet and you know, co that's a lot of work for a coach. So sure, and really probably different. not, not necessarily as accurate either. Not, as, not as, accurate. As a, you can just lie. Yeah. Um, I, I did not do that, but I didn't think I needed to cause I was like, I'm good. But anyway.
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so your time at Pacific Lutheran, you know, you wound up obviously developing quite a bit there. I believe you were a three-time all-conference and an all-American. What was kind of... Like, what was your time like there? What, what, what does the, some of that individual success mean to you? Uh, it was great. I, I think, like, um, oftentimes I think that you know that I went to the right place because that guy wanted me, that coach, Jerry Russell, who um, hopefully is still alive, uh, he wanted me to go there, and nobody else did. And so, like, I went there, and he was like, I'm excited. He called me on my first day. Um, back then, uh, people listening, we had uh, landlines instead of cell phones. So he called me on my dorm phone, and he was like, I'm so excited, and it's going to be great. And uh, uh, the biggest thing was that I switched from being a discus thrower to being a hammer thrower, um, which was a little more in line with my body type and my skill set, which was not really so much skills as it was um, determination, perseverance. But yeah, I won three conference titles, and, and some of those were early. Like my sophomore year, I won both the discus and the hammer. Um, and uh, then my junior year, I was injured. Um, I did come back and throw at the conference championship, but like I, that was the first meet that I'd thrown in that year. And I got fifth in the hammer and fourth and sixth in the discus or something like that. It wasn't very good. My foot was broken. and uh, Tough to throw with a broken it was, foot. It, it was yeah. tough, yeah. And again, like, I don't want to keep saying, I don't want people to think I'm super old. I'm not that old. But it was a different time. Like, we didn't have a trainer, really. There was one trainer at the school, and football was kind of took up all of his time. So when I broke my foot, it was like, all right, well, just wait for it to not be broken again. And so I thought that it wasn't, and then I got in there, and it was still broken. It was not healed so so I did qualify for nationals my junior year at the first meet that I went to the the day before I broke my foot and then um but I didn't end up going because I was I knew that I couldn't throw obviously that's kind of a tough way for your career so to speak to end what was that kind of like just um, mentally yeah I should say uh well that wasn't the end so I came back my senior year and I I I, in a a lot of ways I ended my career the best way you possibly can and I I tell people often track and field almost always ends in failure you know if you're a high jumper it ends when you can't clear a bar if you're a you know whatever your goal is you probably don't reach it at the end and that's one of the very very hard things about track but it, it attracts a certain kind of person but I actually um so my goal was to be an all-american and I barely squeaked into the final at nationals and I didn't think I had made it in fact I was taking my shoes off I was in the first flight and I was kind of watching the guys in the second flight and trying to count who was ahead of me I thought I did not make it I was taking my shoes off and a guy uh, a competitor from a school I never met him before like there were other guys from my conference there and that was kind of fun but um he was like, I think you made it. And I said, I don't think so. And he's like, yeah, you made it. So I was like, well, I'll stop. I didn't tie my shoes again. I just stopped taking them off. And I did make it, and and I got seventh. So um, in a lot of ways, I finished kind of on a success, um, which was uncommon but pretty fun. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, during that period, what kind of made you think that maybe coaching was something that you were interested in the future? I always was a coach, I think. Um, I remember my sophomore year in high school, there was a girl um, that I kind of thought was pretty hotsy-totsy, and uh, she was a year older than me, and I was watching her throw the discus, and she was like, what? And I was like, oh, 
uh, you know, I was pretty passive, but I said, uh, I think like, uh, I don't remember what I said, but it was some kind of technique cue. And uh, she was like, um, tried it and it was good. And she said, uh, you know, you can say things if you want to. And I did. And I, that was just kind of the way that I was. My, uh, But I did not think I would be a coach. I thought I would become a high school coach. So my, my plan was I had majored in classics, which is, um, you know, Latin and Greek. It's super helpful out in the world. For all the engineers listening, um, uh, good on you for getting a real degree. No, classics is real, but it's just like the only job you can get is classics teacher if you're really good, and I wasn't that good. Um, but and That's kind of a dying language. It's, it's dead. So it's not it's dying. Dead. It's dead, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, so I was like, well, I'll be an English teacher. That was kind of my plan. Um, to be an English teacher and coach track. And I was student, so I was getting my master's in English, or in uh, education with an emphasis in, in secondary English. And uh, I was teaching eighth grade, which is tough, tough age. Um, the uh, very few engaged kids who really want to learn about English, um, a number of people thought I was rude um, for assigning homework and things like that. Um, I also realized, like, it's a crazy amount of work. And I, I thought um, when I was student teaching, my, you know, the guy student taught for, he would, like, never assign that much. And I was like, oh, well, well when I teach my unit, I'm going to be like, okay, let's write a three-page essay. And he was like, that's a lot. And I was like, three pages is not a lot, my man. But what I realized was he meant it's a lot to grade. And I did have to, so I had 100 students, every eighth grader in that middle school. So I had to read 300 pages of boring eighth grade essays. And that was tough. That was the first thing that made me think I didn't want to be a teacher. And then I was sitting in the staff room uh, break room and the band teacher and I always thought band is the best thing it's the most fun to teach and he came in and plopped himself down in a chair and said 20 more years like 20 years till he could retire and I thought I don't want to be his age now I am his age um, and saying 20 more like I can't wait until I can retire so um, at the, and then, so what had happened was I was coaching also at PLU where I graduated from. So the coach that I'd had this the year previous had retired, and the the head coach said, "Will you coach for one year while we look for a real coach? We're gonna do a search for a coach, but you could like fill in." And uh, I said, "Yeah, I'd love to," because I was I I was mortified, terrified of leaving the sport behind. And also, like, um, I loved the hammer, and that's not a high school event. So, like, I knew even if I was coaching at high school, it wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't be as fun. So I, I uh, took over as the throws coach. I made $8 an hour. Um, and uh, I was limited also. Like, they would only let me work for 20 hours. Don't tell anybody, but I did work more than that. Um, I just didn't put it on my timesheet because I loved it so much. So I was student teaching, coaching, and I was working a side job as a pizza delivery driver. And uh, at night... Um, what a pretty busy guy. Pretty busy, yeah. And I was like, all of this was all temporary. And then it was like, well, um, could you coach one more year, you know, and then one more year, and then one more year, and then I did I did nine years, and that whole time I was... So I did. I ended up not becoming a teacher, obviously, and um, I just felt not right about it. Um, and I kind of just lived that life for a long time, and then 
uh, I had a disagreement with the head coach. I shouldn't say that. Well, she felt we had a difference in philosophy, which is true. We did have a difference in philosophy. Anyway, we parted ways. But that was wait. That was after nine years. Nine years. Yeah, that's so what. What was yeah. it about? You know, Pacific Lutheran. And you kind of mentioned early on it was just it wasn't necessarily a long term thing. When did it? Were you at at one point? Did you were you named a full time assistant or was no. it like that the whole time? No, I did get a raise mm. because minimum wage went up. They were they were legally obligated to pay me more, um, and uh, so I got nine fifty an hour or something like that. I don't know, but it was still like woefully inadequate. Um, but I also was single more or less that's not true I, I did get married during that time also there's other small details like getting married and having kids that happened at the same yeah, just, time just minor <laughs> minor <laughs> things like that so um my uh my wife was very emotionally supportive of my wanting to do this thing but yeah no i never really and like so even though i did get not exactly fired i just was not rehired so she wanted to move in a different direction i mean i loved it there i would never have left and i think it's something about your alma mater that makes you feel like um i felt like i was part of a a, a line of throwers and coaches that stretched back into antiquity and i thought uh I'm doing the work that will make us great, keep us great, because it was a very good program. Uh, still is a very good program. They've got a really good coach there now. But, um, you know, I would talk to my athletes. I'd be like, you're like a link in a chain, you know, and every the chain has to have links to keep going. And, and every generation there's a new person or a new group of people to kind of continue making that chain. And so um, – I felt I, it's, it sounds kind of cheesy. Um, I still say that today, but uh, like I think that is true everywhere you go. But I, I had more of a connection there because I had been a link in that chain. And um, so, uh, yeah, it, it, I did. It was it's kind of romantic or um, whatever, but that's how I felt about it. Yeah, and obviously, nine years is a long time. What, what I mean. Making nine fifty an hour or whatever, and being married and having kids—how'd you make that work? Oh well, also um, I did keep delivering pizzas also for nine years. That was a job that I was only going to have for a summer. Um, in fact, I bought a car, a Toyota Corolla that um, had four hundred thousand miles on it. I bought it for two hundred dollars. I said, "This will get me through the summer." delivering pizzas and the the um fluorocarbons from the exhaust were so bad that i would turn it off when i was in a drive-thru or something because it would just smoke me out i could barely survive it but uh um i was also doing f commercial fishing i mentioned my dad was a commercial fisherman and he kind of had friends still in the industry so in the summertime i was working as a commercial fisherman which is fairly lucrative job and it kind of kept me going um you know you could make uh twenty thousand dollars in a month and uh but you know it was only a month so it was the life of a track coach is never one of opulence but i think uh, i was i was getting by and my wife also was um working and and also willing to um live uh you know a life that wasn't opulent a little more simple. Pretty simple, yeah. yeah. Look, we bought a house, and, you know, it seems crazy. Now, like, I, again, I don't want to sound like a really old guy, but we bought our first house for $100,000. And um, 
it's super lucky that we just were right. It was right after the the housing bubble of 2008 and um, everything crashed. And then we were like, whoop, it just happened to work out. Like my sisters who are two years, three years older than me, they bought a house way up here and they just got crushed just because they're older than me. They were buying a house at the wrong time and I was buying a house at the right time. And that helped a lot. But yeah, I, I, I did whatever it took to keep going, but I loved coaching. Yeah, and you kind of mentioned having a disagreement with the head coach. Was that the same head coach your entire yeah, time? Yeah, the same head coach my entire time, who had been my head coach for the last two years um, when I was in college and then hired me. And, uh, you know, I don't. we don't have to get all the way into it, but it was like, I, I, it was a shock to me. Yeah, she, yeah uh, that's kind of bizarre to have that long of a relationship as a coach it was bizarre is a word for it yeah and i thought i just felt like the rug had been pulled out from under me it turns out it was good because i would never have left and i would never like she had kind of been saying oh you'll be a head coach or you'll be a full-time coach you'll be a full-time coach and i was like okay awesome um but never really happened so when i got unhired and she did it on Again, like, we don't have to get all the way into it. But she did it in kind of a weird way, and, like, um, right before I left to go fishing. So the fishing season is from June 15th to July 15th, roughly. Um, Five or six weeks, maybe. You know, sometimes it goes to the 20th, or it starts on the 10th, or something like that. But um, so she was like, yeah, I'm not going to rehire you. And I'm like, you're firing me? And she said, no, 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 not firing you. You're just not getting rehired. And I was like, kind of works out to the same thing for me. So... (laughs) I'm leaving, and I've got to, that's the time to apply for jobs for head coaches. It's like right at the end of the season because that's where there's this kind of mad dash musical chairs of coaching jobs opening and filling, and you're trying to like jam your foot in the door. And I'm up in Alaska on a fishing boat, a 32-footer. No phone. There's a satellite phone. So, like, I'm trying to call my wife once a day and be like, hey, apply for jobs. And she did. She applied for 60 jobs on my behalf, ranging from director of ops at uh, Yale down to, um, you know, part-time volunteer at community college, wherever. And I, and I applied for every single job. And I ended up coming back and getting an interview at Western State, what was then called Western State, and is now called Western Colorado University. And, uh, I think my resume was good, and uh, he was like, you know, this, just so you know, this is not a good job. And I was like, well, how, in what way? And he's like, well, it's a really good team, but it does not pay very well. And I was like, well, try me, because I have never made very much money. And he was like, well, like, I think they were expecting to get somebody right out of college, not somebody with nine years of experience. But um, he said it pays 5000 and I was like, yeah, so, like, I've got a wife and two kids. It's going to cost me $5,000 to move there. <laughs> and uh, he was like, the distance team is really good, but our throws could use a little bumping up. And, I, and that really appealed to me. Um, that's Chris Bradford was the coach then. And uh, I was like, I could make a difference, you know. And then I looked at the times, and I was like, man, the distance is not that good. But they have this thing called altitude conversion that I didn't know about. So, like, I was looking at times, and they were, like, a minute slower than they really were. 
And then I got there, and I was like, oh, yeah, the distance team is very, very good here. So, um, but anyway, I, I did go there, and then as I was I was driving straight in a Geo Metro from Tacoma, Washington to Gunnison, Colorado, which is a tough drive because there's a lot of hills, and the Geo is not overly powerful. Um, I uh, got a call from him, and he said, hey, we're going to give you a raise, 5500 So I got a $500 raise on route, which was kind of nice. There you go. Now you have five hundred dollars in your pocket. For that's, move. that's it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I had to get a job when I got there too. Obviously, so I did a variety of side jobs, and I kept fishing, and that you know that kind of kept us going. So did you? Obviously, you can't fish in Colorado. I assume you went back to Seattle. Yeah, it's always uh, it was always in Bristol Bay, Alaska. It's just you know it's like. It cost me a little more to get there because I'd have to fly to Seattle first. Sure. But um, a lot of fishermen are from Seattle. Not very many are from Colorado. Yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned how Western Colorado mentioned that their throws definitely needed needed some help. And, I mean, you, you were able to elevate them quite a bit. Um, three school records, three RMAC championships, and 50 all-conference performers. What was it kind of like to be able to you know, be able to grow that and see that growth over your four or five years there? It was rewarding, you know, and, like, they had the resources. They had the desire. They kind of had, you know, it was a different, very, very different feeling coaching staff. Um, They were producing national champions. They were, like, there was a sense of, like, you're not just trying to get there. You're trying to crush it. Not just get, not be in the podium. Not get second or third. You got to win, and um, that was very exciting to be around because that's how I felt. In fact, when when I was getting let go from my previous job, and she said we had a philosophical difference, I thought that that's what the philosophical difference was. I wanted to win. I wanted to do good, and I, she'd probably disagree with me about that, but. Um, when I got there, I was like, holy cow, these guys really want to be good. And, like, um, that was really different. They had some talent, but, like, they had – it's hard to keep a coach there for $5,000 in Gunnison. Like, if you're a young single man, there's not a lot of young single women there. Like, who – how are – you know, where are you – what are you doing with your life? It, but it was a good fit for me. I wasn't young and single. I was uh, – I loved it in the mountains. Like, it was such a shock to me. When I moved there, and I was like, they were like, "Hey, it gets cold here," and I was like, "Sure, sure, sure. I've been in cold before. I live in Seattle. It's cold there. No, it's not. It's like forty degrees, you know." So when it, the first time I saw minus thirty-five on the on the thing, I was like, "Holy, oh, look at Chuck. That is cold. Like it's cold. Like you can't breathe through your nose, or it'll freeze cold." Um, and, that, and I thought that was fun. It was kind of cool. It was exciting. So like, there was that, and then and it was like they were like. They had made some some commitments scholarship wise to get some good throwers in there, and I think they recognized like we're a good distance team, but we want to be a conference champion team, and we did win indoor conference my first year there, and that was really fun. And a part of it was because of points from the throws, which they had not really gotten before. And they, you know, they just they'd have a coach for a year, and then he'd leave or she'd leave. They'd have a coach for two years, or they'd have like a person graduate who didn't know what to do, kind of like I had been at PLU, and then they'd leave after a year. So, I think um, being there for several years was, you know, I don't know if I'm like a genius coach, but I was consistent, and uh, that made a difference. Yeah, the longevity definitely, and you had a. Really, at all three stops you've been at now, you've yeah. you've been 
you know, you haven't been somebody who's been there for a year and then jumped to the next stop. So right. you, there must be a little bit of emotional attachment to those places to be able to stick, you know, and not just jump to the next. Yeah, for sure. And I think also, like, a lot of young coaches are single, and it's like the best way to build your resume fast is to pop, boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Then you're just kind of getting the athletes. But um, I had a wife and kids. Like, I wasn't, you know, it's, moving sucks. I, I didn't want to move. My wife sure didn't want to move. Um, so, like, we only did, you know, when it was absolutely necessary. Sure. And what was it? about you know western colorado i'm assuming you eventually got a raise or was it pretty much like that the whole time and that's what yeah. made you realize i probably need to look at other options yeah so i did get raises that's one of the reasons i stayed there um but not enough like i was never going to be well i shouldn't say that chris bradford had hired me and he was like i'm going to put you on this plan to kind of get you up to a reasonable amount of pay but it is difficult to pay an assistant coach if it's not in the budget you basically have to fundraise it and that is unknown so it's hard to be like we're going to commit x number of dollars to as i as i transition into head coach i think about this even more and i'm like it's kind of crazy how much he gave me based on that so i eventually he was paying me thirteen thousand, which is again not enough and I had two more kids at the same time. So I had four young boys. And uh, so my wife also couldn't work at that time because, like, what are you going to do? you got four kids not in, not in school. Um, so that was, you know, that was tough. But he really helped me out, and I, I appreciate everything Bradford did for me. Um, and then he left the new uh, – he left, and I felt that I should be um, considered for a full-time position – um, I was not considered and I, it's not like, uh, I felt like I should have been considered. I don't know if I should have gotten it, but I should have been considered. And that rubbed me the wrong way a little bit, but like, uh, Lindsay Grasmick who got the job and is the current head coach there. She's awesome. She's a very good coach. I don't think that like they made the wrong decision or anything, but, I, but I was like, well, I should get a full-time assistant job. And at first, they maybe I think they did offer it to me, but they said, "Well, you can't go fishing anymore." And I was like, "That's a pay cut then, because like that's how I make more than half the money that I make." And uh, and then eventually, I got too old to be a fisherman, and I was like, "Okay, I want to take that full time job." And they're like, "Yeah, it's not available anymore." So at that time, South Dakota Mines was hiring, and I thought kind of the same thing that I did about Western when that job popped up right before I went fishing and I called Steve Johnson and I was like man uh, I'm jumping ahead in the story here but like I thought uh, one it was like don't call us until you know we won't look at resumes until a certain amount of time which is a BOR thing and uh, I was like I gotta call him anyway because I'm gonna be leaving like I gotta say I want this job but I'm gonna be incommunicado for like a month and I thought it's a program that could stand to be built a little bit. And, like, the throws area, like, the, it's it was a school that wasn't. We weren't as strong in distance. But I was like, man, um, rather than try to be strong in distance, which is almost impossible, um, we could really build the the throws program and make, and it was, it was a pretty good throws program already. Jack Batho was throwing. Um, turns out I never would coach him because of injuries and stuff. But like, I thought, yeah, uh, Jayla Jarnigan was throwing. She was very good. Wes Seabrath was very good. Like they, they, they were scoring a conference. 
So I, it, it was a very appealing job. Yeah, so you kind of already mentioned why you came here and um, what other jobs maybe were you considering at that time and what specifically about South Dakota Mines was it? Was it a location thing? Obviously, Colorado to South Dakota, yeah, region-wise, isn't similar. That yeah, so I, you know, I was always on the lookout for the Northwest. I'm a Northwesterner in, in my heart, I think. And uh, but there's like five jobs, and you could ha- there could be a guy in a job for thirty years. So um, who knows? And then uh, so those just were an opening, and I had talked to Shadron was hiring at the same time, and that's kind of similar. Um, but I don't really remember. Shadron already had a very strong throws program. I don't know if that was intimidating to me or what. But anyway, I also talked to Steve, and we hit it off. Like Steve and I are basically the same guy, very similar. We same age, kids, um, both from to the Tacoma, Washington area, you know, like we, we grew up within an hour of each other without ever knowing it. He coached at UPS, University of Puget Sound for one year while I was at PLU at the same time. I never met him or put that together, but we were coaching at Crosstown Rivals in the same year. Um, I named my fourth son, Steve. They have the same birthday. It was just, just seemed like it was meant to be. Yeah. Sure. No, sure. no. Nah, nah. Since you've been here, there's definitely been some improvement in the in the throwing program specifically, but all all over as well. Mm-hmm. But um, where do you kind of what have you been able to do as a coach to be able to consistently improve the throws everywhere you've been? Um, the first thing is is uh, I like to get numbers, um, and I think like I I always think of the hammer first. Uh, not everybody loves that. But the hammer is a really, really different throwing event that nobody does in high school. So, like, um, let's say that you're a uh, mediocre shot putter in high school. You might be a really good hammer thrower, and I think I see that. Um, so recruiting-wise, I am kind of – I hope my athletes don't listen to this and think that I think they're not good. But I'm willing to take chances on people – you know, and I also like uh, Steve was very open, and every head coach I've ever worked for was very open to me having a large throws team, um, which I've done pretty much always. But I think um, identifying talent is a big one. Um, the the kind of uh, approach that I have to throwing is really different than some people. You know, like, but it works to develop a, a large middle class of throwers and. Um, so, like, you know, a lot of people will focus a lot on technique. Um, no coach ever wants to say that they don't focus on technique, except for me. I say um, we focus on volume. So I like to throw a lot, and that's that's different. Um, not everybody does that, but it has been successful, and especially, like, bringing uh, – mediocre high school throwers and making them into good college throwers. And I think that's, uh, um, there are numerous examples of that currently on our team. And, uh, that's, that's it. Yeah. And I mean, you've done really the same thing here coming into indoor season. You had 17 all conference selections here. Um, 
Is there anything specifically that you're really happy with this year or so far this year and then you hope to improve going into outdoor? Yeah, um, I always, they they do this, the USTFCCCA, the United States Track and Field and Cross Country Coaches Association, they put together this thing called the squad ranking, which um, I love because it's an average of your top four athletes. So one thing you have to do is have four athletes. That's a specialty of mine. And I've got eight, you know, or ten in each event. Um, so I think our men's weight squad was ranked 21st or something like that. Women's weight was in the same area. Shot put was very high. And uh, so, like, that the kind of that depth is what I really like. I like to be, like, uh, um, have the most athletes at conference. But um, we we had somebody make a final in each event that's never happened in my career i've never had somebody make a final in each event so far outdoor we'll see hopefully but i think we're a little bit stronger outdoor um i think that my uh, recruiting and uh, development strategy is better for the hammer than the weight and uh so we'll we'll see about that but yeah i i i'm very proud of the program and and almost Almost everybody is a walk-on. That's another thing. So uh, to get a big team at a school without a lot of money, you have to basically say, please come here. Um, so every single man, every single male thrower on the team currently started as a walk-on. So I'm very proud of that. And these guys have earned scholarships, and we've been able to help them out a little bit. Um, but they're here it's one of the things I loved about D3 when I coached D3. Like, there was no scholarships. Everybody was just there just to do it. They just wanted to do it. There's no question about it. And when you give a person a small scholarship, you're like, hey, you'd be way better off these days working at McDonald's. You know, like, for the time, you're not making – you're making 50 cents an hour or something for your scholarship. So don't do it for the money, please. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, what are your kind of expectations? You know, you kind of mentioned maybe – your style of coaching works a little better with the hammer than the weight throw. What are your kind of expectations going into the outdoor season here in a couple weeks? Um, we'll see. I think uh, the conference has gotten um, significantly better. Like, as we've gotten better, the conference has gotten better. So, like, uh, oh, um, Macy McClure got sixth in the weight at conference. She threw 1705. Two years ago, 1705 would have gotten second. Um, she'd be on the podium. Uh, it's just very deep. Warren Meinrich, same thing. He threw 1693. That that mark is a top three all every year, except for this year he got seventh because it's just so deep. So I, I don't know what the hammer is going to be like outdoors. Um, and obviously, like, the discus and the javelin. Um, the javelin is, like, kind of a weird event in the armac where i came from in the northwest conference it was very very good here it is not very good and it has to do with um they don't throw that in colorado in high school they just started in south dakota so anyway um i'm excited about it like i think uh uh macy as an example um like she just missed a provo indoor she will make a Provo outdoor. She's our school record holder in the hammer. She's better at the hammer than the weight. I think that her improvements in the weight will translate, and she'll throw 56 meters and make it to nationals, and that's awesome. Warren, he could easily do that too. Um, he threw 49 meters last year, but he improved in the weight by over a meter. I think that translates to three or four meters in the hammer, and I think he'll throw 53, 54 and be a, be a 
you know, a top three guy in the conference for sure. Sure. Um, the last thing I kind of wanted to bring up is obviously recently Steve Johnson decided to resign. He's moving into uh, more of the athletic administration side. What does that change for you guys as a coaching staff? Obviously, you're the interim. Does that put a lot more on your plate now, and what has that kind of adjustment been like? Yeah, it puts a lot more on my plate, um, and it puts a lot more on Coach Ricky's plate, too. Um, she uh, and I are – before, we we're it was three people doing the job of five people. Now it's two people doing the job of five people. So, um, you know, that's uh, tough – also, like, I've never been a head coach, um, but I've been in the game for a while. Like, I've seen things. I know how to – I think I can do things. Um, uh, we're going to make some changes. We're going to move in a direction, but there's also, like, it's interim, and that's, you know, that's the word to put. Um, so it, we're kind of um, – I want to say this exactly right here um, – if I get the job, like if I am hired as the head coach, I would make some significant changes. But um, we will get through this season as best as we can and kind of follow the the format that Coach Johnson laid out. And, um, you know, which is a format that has led to this being the best hard rocker track and field team that there has ever been. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not like raring to change everything. But there are some things that I think uh, we could continue to improve on, and, I, and I'm, I'm anxious to, to see how that goes. Sure, and part of that um, maybe philosophy difference could be, you know, when he took over the program in 2014, it was a lot different Oh yeah, different than it is when you got here in 2019. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing was uh, he was the first assistant coach yeah. Uh, Jerry Schaefer was a one-man show for 30 years, which is a long time to be a one-man show. It's very hard to get things going. So one of the things that Steve did that was really good was he pushed to get not just one more, not one assistant, but two assistants. And that, that made, I think that was, if I had to point at something, and it's not just because I'm a coach, but that's the main thing that he did that, help this program to grow because recruiting and training you can recruit people but if you can't train them it doesn't really help you to have more people so like they want to grow the program which is great but um and by grow it i mean they want to have more number they want to have a bigger team we don't have a huge team um i think we've got just about 60 on the team whereas like at western colorado they had 110 or something like that so it's huge you know um so, <clears throat> but it helps to grow it a lot. We were, you know, every single year prior to St Steve hiring me, I think they, they'd be like, we have to have three meets with 14 women entered in order for it to count as a season. And that was a real struggle. But like now we have seven female throwers and we've got 15 female distance runners and we've got, you know, so we've got, it's no, not a difficulty to just put female athletes on the track so that that's a huge step in, in a in a good direction all right thank you so much dan and did you have any other comments or anything you wanted to add i don't think so up? no this all was right. fun thank you so much for joining me today you